You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We meet here every single week to chop up all the prominent, newsworthy, and hilarious happenings in the world of mixed martial arts. Ben, how you doing this week? Well, Chad, I took my children to the dentist this morning. Oh, nice. That's always a great time. Relaxing is how I would describe it. A great way to start off your Monday morning, 8 a.m., down there at the dentist, just getting shit done, just taking care of business. I face, though, an ethical quandary, and I want to know what you would have done in this situation. So you go to the dentist, right? You take the kids to the dentist. If they have like no cavities and if they behave themselves and whatever, then they give them tokens, which then can be exchanged in a little a series of little vending machines on the way out where you can get trinkets and tiny little, you know, cheap plastic toys and whatever. Sure. I've, I've never seen them deny these tokens to anybody, but they are ostensibly reserved for like meeting a certain set of goals, teeth-wise. Um now, my daughters, they go at the same time. They get separated into different rooms. The different dental hygienists can work on them uh, at the same time. And I'm with the youngest one. She needs a little more oversight. The dental hygienist gives her three tokens. And I'm like, okay, I guess that's, I mean, that seems like a lot of tokens, but no cavities, teeth were pretty good, all that. And then I notice when we, we go over for her older sister and she's leaving, her dental hygienist also says that she's done great and everything, but only gives her two tokens. Now, I have already pocketed the younger daughter's tokens so that she does not lose them. But while we're on the way out, I'm realizing we might be headed for a situation here. Yeah. Because if one sees that the other one got one more token than she did and get one more little trinket, then it's gonna be it's gonna be a thing. And so then I'm like, all right, what do I do when the youngest asks me, hey, where are my tokens? Do I just hand her two and hope she doesn't remember that there were three? And if she does remember, do I do I gaslight my own daughter? Do I tell her, no, you're wrong. You are mistaken. You only got two tokens. There are only ever two tokens. And just play it off. Or do I just play it straight? Give her the three tokens and, you know, let the, the chips fall where they may, consequences-wise. What would you do, Chad Dennis? Wow, this is uh, – I did not anticipate this at the beginning of the show to be put on the spot like this. I'll be perfectly honest with you. I would have tried – to give the younger daughter two tokens and hope she didn't notice that one was missing. That's exactly what I did. But I was prepared to lie to her if she if she noticed that one was missing. I was about to say, nope, no, there weren't three. You're just a child. You, you don't know anything. You can't even count, dummy. Now take your trinket to let's go home. And then did I she notice? Nope, didn't notice. Okay, see, and I, part of this is that you got to know how to read your own kid, right? Like. Uh, as a parent, I think you got to have some realistic expectations about whether or not that child is or isn't going to know if you, you know, perpetrate a magic trick right in front of her. Uh, and I got to say, my my two youngest probably would not. My eldest daughter absolutely, definitely, one hundred percent would. So that would be a different problem to have if it was, you know, if the roles were switched there. Yeah, but see, I was then. I was then. I would just hope. I would hope that the younger two didn't notice she got one more trinket than they did i was totally committed i was just i was gonna i was gonna go all the way on insisting that there had never been a third token never would be a third token nothing in my pocket and i absolutely will not let you check 
to see if there is. I got home. I slipped that third token in the trash. Yeah. No, you don't want them to find it later. So that's my it's morning. Like, I faced a, an like ethical quandary, the, uh, and I yeah. think I failed. I think I failed, but I also succeeded, if you know what I mean. No, I think you pulled it off. Uh, everybody knows we continue to roll on like we always do here, providing free weekly content every Monday on the proper, as well as all week long over on our Patreon page. In fact, supporting the CME via Patreon is probably more important now than it ever has been before, thanks to all the people who went over the past few weeks and have already signed up over there or up their contributions. We appreciate the support more than you guys know. Uh, help keep the discourse unfettered and get access to a bunch of additional podcasts every week. If it's something you've been thinking about doing but you've held off so far, now is the time. Go on over to patreon.com slash co-main event and sign up to support the show. And Ben, to that end, some pretty exciting news here about UFC 251 coming up on July 11th. Yeah, I'm excited. So We excited. are going to be having a... Uh, a fight party, a socially distanced fight party over on the Patreon. People have tuned into our live streams over there before if they've already been been patrons. This time, we'll be doing it from two separate locations, one over here at my house and you over here at your house. And uh, I believe we'll be doing it via Zoom meeting. And everybody ought to know how to use goddamn Zoom by now, right? We've That's been just right. living that way for the last few months. Now, we have to cap it at a certain number. Is that correct? I believe okay. that's right. I believe what, that's right. Number? I think it's 500 people. Okay. Uh, so, uh, you know, get in early if you want to be there. We, we got, we've still got some time. I think we're going to have, we'll have more details coming up for you guys as the, uh, as these next couple of weeks play out, but just wanted that to be on everybody's radar. It'll be available. I think probably to all patrons over there at the uh, Patreon page slash co-main event. So if you want to get down with us at the fight party, you got to get over there and join the team over on Patreon. Yeah. It's kind of a first come first serve kind of deal. So that if you, if you put it off, jump it in there and if the fight party gets full, then you kind of have to stand outside the club. Like one of those sad sacks waiting for the bouncer to, to tell you that it's okay for you to go in. Yeah, Nobody wants absolutely. that. Uh, so here's what we're doing this week. We had this UFC on ESPN 12 event on Saturday night. Pretty good fight card. They're headlined by Dustin Poirier versus Dan Hooker. And of course, you had Mike Perry and Mickey Gall in the co-main event. Uh, fair amount of storylines coming out of that 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 event this week. And of course, this weekend, July the 4th, taking this weekend off of, from uh, UFC events. They return a week from Saturday for that UFC 251 card we were just talking about. So we're going to do an all questions considered episode of the co-main event podcast this week, trying to touch on as much stuff regarding this uh, UFC on ESPN 12 card that happened over the weekend as we can. We got lots of good questions from the loyal listeners of the co-main event podcast, lots of uh, interesting stuff to discuss. So Ben, uh, we're going to start here with listener Jizzy B. All right. Well, hey, what better way could there be to start? Really? Yeah, so uh, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna ask too many questions about this screen name, Jizzy B. Uh, but we're gonna go right into his or hers life or death questions from Saturday's fight card. Yeah, and here's just, where we start. Are wondering Jizzy B is spelled exactly the way you think it is. Like, yeah. the, imagine the most unsettling way it could be spelled, and that's it. That's what yeah. we got here. It's the way that I feared it would be spelled, I think, if we're we're being perfectly honest. All right, here's the life or death questions from Saturday's card. Number one, can we actually say that Dan Hooker belongs among the lightweight elite? Here's the caveat. We got home to, he got a home to, this is from Jizzy B. These are not my thoughts. These are the thoughts of Jizzy B. 
He got a hometown decision against Paul Felder, and he got his ribs cooked into submission by Barbosa. That's just the uh, the the, uh, the caveat here, the additional information provided around this first life and death question from Jizzy okay. B. That seems like the most uncharitable view of Dan Hooker. Like if you, we've talked about this before, how you can do this to anybody. Yeah, you can look at through anybody's resume and find a way to discredit them or to make it seem not as impressive as it is. And this is the way, I guess, that if you were going to do it to the the lightweight version of Dan Hooker, this is how you would go through and try to take away from what the man has accomplished. Because I think honestly, if you look at Dan Hooker over the years, he's gotten a lot better. He's just a way more complete fighter and way more dangerous fighter than he used to be. And this fight, he goes in there against the guy who was the interim lightweight champion who is, I think, has shown himself to be one of the lightweight elite. I don't think you can argue that Dustin Poirier is not one of the lightweight elite. And they had themselves a dogfight, man. Like, that was a close-ass fight. I could see how somebody could make an argument that maybe they felt like Dan Hooker deserved to win. I think it was the right call giving it to Dustin Poirier. But that was a hell of a fight, man. Like, I don't I don't know how you can come away from that fight and be like, well, the one thing we learned here is that Dan Hooker isn't that good. Uh, no, no Jizzy B. I refuse to even entertain that that possible viewpoint. Yeah, I think this is one of those few UFC main event fights where both guys come out of it looking pretty good just because of the nature of the of the slugfest we had here. Uh, you know, we talked on Friday during the power hour about how this might be the fight that affects what we think of Dustin Poirier for the rest of his career. Uh, and I think for Dan Hooker, it was it was a good litmus test fight to find out how good he really is, despite the fact that he rolled into this bout on a seven and one uh, streak over his last eight fights, pretty hard to disregard that, and, you know, regardless of of how you feel about the guy, including a uh, July 2018 knockout win over Gilbert Burns, who you might remember from the upcoming welterweight title fight against Kamara Usman. So pretty good win there. Uh, yeah, man, over over 25 minutes to see Dan Hooker keep neck and neck with Dustin Poirier as well as he did during this fight. I don't necessarily think that uh, that you could think or say anything bad about Dan Hooker coming out of this fight, especially since he was, you know, early, early on, it seemed like Dan Hooker might have the, might have the equation here. Like he might be getting the win. And then he kind of took a, uh, a come from behind effort from, from Dustin Poirier over the second half of this fight, I think to really secure that decision. So I come out of this thing thinking better thoughts about Dan Hooker than I had coming in. Yeah, me too. What, what's Number our two, other life or death question here? Second life or death question from Jizzy B. Do you think if Poirier picks up another win against Tony or Oliveira or Connor, does he get the Habib rematch? And then he says, or since we're making all these catch weights, what about Poirier versus Masvidal? I would cream my shorts for that one. That's not a bad fight. I think, well. Well, hold on. Are you just going to no sell Jizzy B saying he would cream his shorts? Okay. All right. How, how much time do, of this podcast do you want to devote to that that image? Just just one second. I just didn't want you to cruise by it, pretend like it didn't happen. First of all, Poirier and Masvidal, training partners. So especially to make a fight like that where you don't absolutely have to between two American top team guys, it's not like there's a belt and they're both right there and you, there's no way around it. You got to make that fight. Uh, so that's against it. I also think Masvidal is just too big for Poirier and that's not – if I were managing Dustin Poirier's career, that is not what I would advise him to do. Somebody was asking me in my mailbag this week about what he should what he should do after winning a fight like this, especially because 
Like, I don't think, I think it would take a lot for people to get super interested in a Dustin Poirier Khabib rematch at this point. Because yeah. it feels like Especially we kind of know. Considering the way he lost. Yeah. Like, we know how that one's going to go, or at least we feel like we do. And there's a lot of other stuff that feels like it would need to happen at the lightweight division, or, or would be more pressing to happen at the lightweight division. I think if I'm Dustin Poirier, or if I'm in charge of managing Dustin Poirier's career, the thing I would advise him to do right now is take some time off. For one, because that was a grueling fight that he just went through. And he seemed aware of that. He made that comment afterwards that he wanted to take some time off to kind of maintain his love for the sport, make sure he didn't burn himself out, which is smart. Like that is a smart guy, like realizing that you, know, that you might be in danger of harming your passion for the sport if you jump right back into a training camp after a fight like that. I would, if I'm Justin Poirier, I would honestly be thinking about maybe taking the rest of 2020 off because right now the lightweight division still has a lot of shit to sort out. You know, you got to have Khabib versus Justin Gaethje. No one knows what the hell Conor McGregor is going to do. I mean, Tony Ferguson would be a fun matchup for Dustin Poirier, but then also you're looking at a guy who is, he's coming off a loss and he just had a, a grueling fight. You know, maybe if you wanted to match those two up at, at the end of the year, but I'd also want to know if I'm Dustin Poirier, what's the plan here? Is this, are you telling me that me versus Tony Ferguson is to see who gets the next shot at lightweight, at the lightweight title? Like, regardless of who wins? Like, I want to know up front before I agree to something like that. Like, what am I exactly fighting for other than the the show and the win money? The other thing I would say is, like, the if you're just looking at possible matchups out there that would just be interesting on, on their face, regardless of what comes after or what it's for or anything, the McGregor rematch would be the one. Yeah. Like, that's the one, if I'm Dustin Poirier, I'd be like, I'm taking 2020 off unless Conor McGregor says he'll fight me, in which case my phone will be on. Right. Yeah, I know. I agree with that assessment. I think the Conor McGregor fight is the one you'd be pretty hot after if you were Dustin Poirier, especially with uh, uh, McGregor's coach, John Kavanaugh, out here tweeting replays of it in the wake of your victory over over Dan Hooker. Uh, you'd probably want to target that one. He's, let me just Let's just run down what Dustin Poirier has done. Over the last couple of years here, they're going back to February of 2017. So effectively, like a little bit over the last three years for for Dustin Poirier, he had the majority decision win against Jim Miller. That was a fight of the night. Then he had the Eddie Alvarez fight at UFC 211, where it was declared a no contest because of illegal strikes to Poirier's head from Eddie Alvarez. Then he goes Anthony Pettis victory, Justin Gaethje victory, rematch with Eddie Alvarez victory, decision win over Max Holloway. Then the Habib fight, where obviously he goes into the third round and gets choked out by Nurmagomedov. Then 25-minute goddamn fight of the year candidate against Dan Hooker. Like, that run is kind of amazing yeah. when you think about it, especially when you consider what it probably did to your body. And, of course, coming into this Dan Hooker fight, Dustin Poirier coming off uh, a fairly significant hip surgery that he that had been bothering him for a while. So I think you're right, man. If, if the UFC doesn't have any real um, – lucrative or 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 pressing plans for Dustin Poirier in the immediate I would say take some time off Dustin like rest up a little bit because if we're just talking about years of service here he's done a lot in these three most recent years um I'm going to drop this question from from Steve in London because it's it's pertains to what we're talking about here he writes why isn't Dustin Poirier a bigger star like way bigger he's one of the best fighters in the best division a certified headliner the vast majority of his fights are as violent and entertaining as it gets he's charismatic good looking 
he's great on the mic and also happens to be one of the all-around nicest chaps in the sport. So what gives? Why are the UFC not shoving this seemingly perfect and highly marketable man in our faces like certain other arguably less warranted fighters? Basically, what I'm saying is, why the fuck is Dustin Poirier not the one telling me the tough guys like tough tires? <laughs> okay, good point. The thing that I thought about in considering this very question is isn't this the exact kind of situation where it would be nice to have the parent company of the organization a massive sports and talent agency that could leverage its uh, entertainment industry contacts to get you some visibility out there in front of a bunch of different audiences that otherwise maybe don't realize who Dustin Poirier is and how awesome he is? Isn't that exactly the kind of thing that the UFC told people that it was going to be doing once it got bought by WME, IMG, now Endeavor. Like that's exactly the thing that it was saying. Like, it was even saying this to investors. Like we can we can afford to fire these other people who work for the UFC right now because we don't need them. Uh, we have all these entertainment industry contacts. We we don't need somebody whose job at the UFC is just trying to get Dustin Poirier on like late night with Stephen Colbert or Jimmy Fallon or, or whatever it is. Like. We we represent those people, so we can just call them up and be like, "Hey, have Dustin Poirier on your show," and therefore we'll save money by eliminating those jobs, which they did, by the way. Like whenever Dana White's like, "Hey, we didn't lay anybody off during the pandemic," no, you just fired people after you sold the company. So, still, this is exactly the kind of situation you'd want because, and, and it would be a win win for everybody because I agree with Stephen London. Like when you look at all the pieces for Dustin Poirier, they're there. Like, yeah. you know, good looking guy who can represent himself well in front of the camera. He can talk. He can he's articulate. He can explain himself and also just a good dude, like not going to embarrass you, not going to show up on TMZ for the wrong reasons. And the kind of guy who could be a little bit of a gateway drug into the sport and into the UFC for a, a more casual viewer like that. You might hear about this guy. And then if you manage to replay this fight and get people to sit down and watch for 25 minutes, this, this Dan Hooker fight. I mean, that is, it seems to me, one of the ways you could take people who are not UFC fans currently and possibly make them become UFC fans because they, they need an in. They need somebody who gets their attention and gets them to start paying attention. Dustin Poirier sure seems to me like he could be that guy, right? Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And uh, it seems like we've been singing this song for years on this show, just like why doesn't the UFC take advantage of these people that it has, like Dustin Poirier, who you think it would be very easy for him to put the, the entire sport's best foot forward in any kind of uh, media arrangement, a guy that you could put on late night talk shows or, or what have you, and just feel good that he's going to go out there and, and like not only be good and entertaining, but he's also you know going to give the that platform an opportunity to say nice things about his charity, and therefore like, hey, look at this UFC fighter who's a, just got the key to the city and all this stuff. And as far as why they haven't done that, I really have no answer for it, except that. Dustin Poirier is one of these guys who has been in the Zufa LLC family for a long, long time. If you go back to his WEC debut against Danny Castillo, uh, that was in August of 2010. So we are va uh, quickly approaching a solid decade for Dustin Poirier in one of the uh, you know, UFC-owned companies. And he really didn't come into his own uh, 
as a star until the, the, these last three years that I talked about a few minutes ago, where he goes on this run and beats Max Holloway and gets on the gets the interim title and and goes on to fight Habib Nurmagomedov, and you know maybe it's a it's he's one of these guys that we or, or the company had a tendency to look at and say like well Dustin Poirier has been a, in our organization for so long we kind of know the highs and lows of of what he's capable of and maybe he was easy to overlook a guy like that uh, for a long time especially since people rarely over a long period of time craft themselves into stars in the UFC. Most of the people who are stars in the UFC are UFC stars almost from the beginning of their careers, right? You see it in Ronda Rousey. You see it in Brock Lesnar. Conor McGregor becomes uh, a main event, popular, big-time draw relatively quickly in his UFC career. A guy like George St. Pierre took a little bit longer to win the title, but by the time he did so, we all kind of looked around at each other and knew that he was the future of that division. It, you know, Short of a guy like Jorge Masvidal, it's hard to think of someone who is in the UFC as long as Dustin Poirier has been or been around MMA circles as long as Dustin Poirier has been, who then suddenly poof, becomes a star. Although, I mean, I think you look at the tangibles here and he's got them all. And I don't know that there's really a great excuse to not utilize him in that role. Yeah, I was going to say Masvidal is kind of the only example you can think of. And even then, that was one of the things people remarked upon was how unusual it was to see a guy at this point late in his career kind of break into that next level of stardom and look where it led him and the UFC beefing over money. Right. Uh, next question this week comes from Jeff Smith, who writes, there's been a lot of recent talks about the fight of the year, Poirier versus Hooker, Emmett versus Burgos in this pandemic era. I feel like people are sleeping on uh, Wiley Zhang versus Yolani Gajajic as fight of the year. At the halfway point of 2020, where are y'all's fight of the years? Thanks. Uh, I don't know that I'd say people are sleeping on Zhang versus Yedjajic. I think it's probably still the consensus choice as fight of the year, although Poirier versus Hooker was certainly terrific. And when it happened on Saturday night, maybe due to recency bias, maybe just because people got a little bit carried away, everyone was talking about Poirier versus Hooker as a potential fight of the year. I think it should be on the list. I don't think it was as great of a fight as as Zhang versus Yedjajic was, though. That's that's still where I'm at. I still put... uh, put that fight as as my leading candidate for fight of the year. And frankly, for something to knock it off, we're going to have to get another goddamn barn burner out here in the second half of the year. Yeah, I, I think the same thing. I I've initially felt like right after the Poirier-Hooker fight ended where I thought, well, that's one of the most incredible fights I've ever seen. Maybe that's fight of the year. And then I, I think that is recency bias because when we were doing that survey and asking fighters, one of the questions on the survey was, other than one of your own, what's your favorite fight? And a whole lot of people said Zhang versus Yen Jacek. And I, I do think that that is right now my choice for fight of the year. But Borja Hooker is a close second, man. I mean, I think the Burgos one is a little more distant third place. And then it's also hard to compete. Like if you got three rounds and the other guys had five, like five is where both those fights really started to pull away and distinguish themselves because you just couldn't believe the the kind of stuff that these people were putting themselves through. Uh, like the Poirier hooker fight, especially man, it's like by the end of the second round, I was going, I don't know how these guys are still standing here like this. And for them to go all five rounds like that, like that is a fucking crucible. And I think that that's super impressive. Uh, I do still think though, that the, if you, if you make me choose right now, Zhang versus Yen Jacek is the one to try to knock off the pedestal. We're still only halfway through the year though, Chad. Yeah. We're still got like six months to go. A lot of stuff could still happen. Next question this week comes to us from Devin Scott, who writes, God damn it, Platinum Mike Perry did it again. From the laundry list of reasons why I shouldn't like the guy, you think it would be easy to write him off. 
Uh, can you guys discuss Mike Perry's antics this week and what your thoughts uh, on his chances were to win the bout against Mickey Gall without a real uh, fight camp in his corner? As mentioned, we're used to Mike Perry hashtag just saying stuff, but his post-fight interview with John Mustachio Anik was about the economics of fighting, fight camps, corners, and international tax brackets was not the rant that I expected. All I have to say is touche, Mr. Platinum, touche. Is this an example of unintentional, profound insight? What says you? Yeah. Well, Mike, some of Mike Perry's thoughts about how the contracts and the taxation could work. I mean, I love listening to it, for one thing. Yeah. Especially yeah. when Mike Perry seemingly being genuinely baffled by the idea, like, why would you give me this money if then I have to give some of it back to the government? Like, why don't you just give me the amount of money you want me to have? Because I, how are you going to give me this money and not expect me to spend it when you know I'm trying to ball out? And it's like, it's true. Mike Perry, the U.S. government doesn't know that you're trying to ball out, and that is unfair of them to not take that into account. Uh, but, I, I mean, buried in this somewhere is a real conversation that we talked about before about how fighters get screwed on taxes. And they get screwed in a lot of different ways, but a lot of people have their hands in the fighter's pocket. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why you may send Mike Perry out there with his girlfriend as his corner, because one less person had their hand in your pocket. But uh, I do think that for fighters, uh, especially for a lot of young fighters, when they start making pretty good paychecks in the UFC, I think it is a shock for them to see how much of it ends up going away taxes because you're independent contractors, you you might fight uh, a few times a year, and they might all be in different states or different countries. And the next thing you know, you feel like, wait a minute, when I signed that contract, and I saw that, hey, there was a point in the future where I was going to be making like 50 and 50. That's pretty good money, man. Like a hundred grand if I win, and I'm going to fight two or three times a year. Like I, I'm, I'm going to be, I'm going to be rolling in it. And then you don't realize how little of that you're actually ending up with at the end. So, like, I think that it is, in a way, one of those Diazian kind of rants, and that there is some nuggets of real truth in there. You just got to get through all the other kind of ridiculous bullshit to find it. Yeah, it's easy to make fun of Mike Perry for his taxation rant. But at the same time, anybody who's ever been paid as an independent contractor before was sitting at home kind of nodding, being like, yep. Yeah. Yep, that's how it works. That's how it works, Mike. And they do take a lot of your money. They do take a lot of your money. Here's this I, I'm going to ask this question about Mike Perry also from uh, the world's fastest man, Usain Bolt. Okay, good. In, uh, I'm glad he wrote in. To, gotta love Mike Perry. The guy is stark raving mad, but still a hell of a fighter. A part of me really wants him to see him go against uh, Diego Sanchez, maybe just for the psychotic stare down. Am I alone in this? Now, let's talk just for a second about the Mike Perry-Mickey Gall fight, the co-main event on this fight card from over the weekend. Uh, we talked last week on on the the live chat and then the power hour a little bit about what was going on with Mike Perry and whether or not it seemed like he was melting down a little bit in front of our very eyes uh, during media week. It seemed like he was less willing to play the media game than he has been in the past, which is you know something considering Mike Perry has never been all that keen about playing the media game. Uh, and we talked a lot about how he was going to show up here with his girlfriend as his only corner person, and they were going to you know work this fight together. And Mike Perry said he didn't need any instruction and blah, blah, blah. And then you actually watch the fight against Mickey Gall. And I don't know about you, Ben, but I kind of thought as I was watching this, like, you know what? Maybe Mike Perry is right. Maybe like Mike Perry is actually just going to go out there and be Mike Perry and do the Mike Perry thing all the time. And he doesn't necessarily need anybody to tell him how to do that. Like, I think you could, you know, you might be able to ask some questions about, can he get better? Can he evolve as a fighter from this 
arrangement. And it sounds like now that the fight is over, he's going to go out and try to like build a training camp uh, as long as he can find people to do it kind of under the, the, the stipulations that Mike Perry thinks are, are necessary for him to, to do best to do business. But like, I don't know, Ben, what did you think about watching this Mickey golf fight? Cause I came away from it thinking like Mike Perry might actually be right here that if you're just going to be Mike Perry, you probably don't need a lot of extra people around you taking, taking cuts of that money. Yeah. Okay. See, it's kind of what I wondered about. Like if you're just going to be Mike Perry, like that, that point, because I wonder if, is it possible that he really sat down and, and performed a calculation where he was like, look, I think it's pretty clear at this point that Mike Perry is not going to be the UFC uh, champion in any one of these divisions. And yet I'm a fun guy for them to have around and they're going to want to keep putting me out there, you know, sometimes against super tough guys, sometimes against a little less so, but they want the Mike Perry show to come around a few times a year. And I bring a certain value, but that value is not winning them all. And that's okay. Like I can make a career that way. I can carve out some money that way. But if that's what I'm going to do, and I kind of already know how to do that, then why do I need to be paying these coaches to give me a portion of their time and to show up in my corner and put the ice on the back of my neck when my girl can do that just as well? And as long as I can show up in shape and everything, then what do I need those people for since I already kind of know where I land in this overall picture? I mean, it's, I don't know if that would be exactly a cynical calculation on his part i mean i think it would be kind of accurate i wonder like do you think he's really capable of that do you think that because the fighters have a hard time i think being that unflinchingly honest with themselves to say because that would be difficult i think for some people to say look i'm as good as i'm ever going to be basically and above this certain point i will never rise in all likelihood what i should do is maximize the, my potential within the, that zone where I am that like I should focus on bringing the kind of value that I do and making the most of that, but also in keeping the most of the money that I can. Do you, do you think he's capable of having that conversation with himself? Or do you think when Mike Perry puts his head down on the pillow at night, he's like one of these days, Mike, you're going to be champion. I can almost guarantee you that he did not make that exact calculus in his mind. Okay. But I think through a separate thought process, he reached the same conclusion, right? Like, uh, and I, th- I think in Mike Perry's mind, it probably was something a little bit closer to what he said during fight week before this Mickey Golf fight, which was, when things go right for me, it's because I'm following my own path. And it's Mike Perry out there doing Mike Perry shit. And when people or when things go bad for me, it's because I listened to other people. And they came along and changed my approach and put all of these thoughts in my head and try to tell me what to do or or make this strategy thinking they knew better than I did. And then I went out there and tried to do it and it didn't work, which is, you will have to admit, a far more MMA fighter to think thing to think, right? Yeah. Like that's what the MMA fighter thinks. The MMA fighter thinks when I'm allowed to do this by myself, but to do things my way, I have better results. And I think the rest of it uh, came as a result of that. Like the, uh, I don't have to pay my training partners. I don't need to like spend my time traveling all over the country. I don't need to have these people coming in here, parachuting into my gym, thinking they can make a, a game plan for me. Uh, and so it's like, it was a different methodology, but he still, he still got around to the same place. And I'm, but you know, like, and I guarantee you, Mike Perry thinks he can be the champion. Of course he does. Uh, he probably doesn't necessarily think he needs to evolve all that much to be the champion. I think that there are some, you know, you could ask some questions and poke some holes in that, in that philosophy. But at the same time, 
from a from like a spectator standpoint, if he is just going to go out there and be Mike Perry, maybe he doesn't need a mastermind. Maybe he doesn't need uh, Trevor Whitman or Brandon Gibson or Henry Hooft or somebody like that who's going to try to game plan their way to victory here. Maybe he maybe being Mike Perry is just the thing that Mike Perry can do. Yeah. Well, and you know what though, with this fight, we talked about it a little before. He said when he got it booked, like, "Hey, thanks to the UFC for giving me an easy fight, like Mickey Gall." when uh, I've been fighting all these really tough dudes. And then even when he was telling people, my girlfriend's going to be my only corner, I've been just kind of dropping into different gyms, getting my training in, you know, Volcano Beach or whatever it is, to, like going to good restaurants, that's how I've been getting my training in. Even then, he was a three-to-one favorite. So it's not like him coming out and beating Mickey Gall. I know we're going to do the thing where people look at it and go, okay, uh, we all laughed at him having his girlfriend, but w- is did he get the last laugh? I mean, he was supposed to win this fight, even with the girlfriend in the corner, you know. So, and that's what happened. Next question this week comes from Oscar Eagle, who writes: So, Jean Vellante goes out there looking like he just ate Roy Nelson, looking pretty flat before uh, almost gets the finish in the third, and then weirdly tapping to a weird submission, an arm triangle from the bottom that mainly seemed to suffocate him. Is this COVID heavyweight experiment over, or is the belly here to stay? You know, I felt a, a pang of recognition when I saw Jean Vellante out there with his his quarantine bod i was kind of like bro same same bro i know exactly what you're going through you know the gym's been closed you've been around the house you've probably stockpiled a lot of snacks in the early days of the pandemic when it was clear was it wasn't clear if we were going to be able to get to the grocery store too often or not the next thing you know you know you're not feeling that great about taking your shirt off at the beach so i I feel like I I know exactly how it might have arrived at this point. And yet it's also like that's that's not a great outing for you if you're John Vellante. Just not in any single way. John Vellante now four and seven in his last eleven fights. Weirdly enough, Ben, at one point during uh 2017, 2018, Jean Vellante had four split decisions in a row. Uh huh. okay. Went went two and two over that stretch. And he comes, he's he's now lost two in a row here. This obviously, uh, his return to heavyweight from much earlier in his career, back in his uh, ring of combat strike force days. Uh, but I don't know, man, like for, with Jean Vellante, I guess you might as well do what feels best at this point because no one is expecting you to be the champion. No one like really has you tabbed as a, an up and comer in either of these divisions. You're kind of around because you can put on a fun fight and you will probably go in there and fight anybody. And so I just think like, you know, you, whatever you feel like is working best for you is, is what you should do, whether or not that's, you know, uh, being a 255 pound heavyweight with a dad bod man on the street build, or whether it's trying to go back to light heavyweight or, or whatever, it's just, uh, it seems like Jean Vellante is probably at a point in his career where, like, you know, he's he's free to make his own choices. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Uh, and like, I don't know if we can say all that much bad stuff about the guy for for getting caught in this weird submission by Maurice Green. Like, Maurice Green has good submissions; it's one of his things. And he's a fucking huge dude with super long arms who can probably get that arm triangle choke in a position where many people cannot get it. Now, does that also mean that that there's some fatigue? playing a role here against John Vellante in the third round of this heavyweight fight. 
I mean, I think we could probably read into it and answer that in the affirmative. It probably he was probably getting tired. Uh, but like, I don't know. I think it's, you know, the ability to get that submission, I think, says more about Maurice Green than it necessarily does about John Vellante. I don't know. I mean, I'm not trying to take anything away from Maurice Green's win there, but you drop a guy in the third round, and that's your opportunity to go in there, and then you end up getting triangle choked from the bottom. Like, if you're a professional, you should not be getting arm triangle choked in that position. Because a guy, like, an arm triangle choke, one of the ways that it, people get it on you and the way because they have to get it pretty deep to begin with it's one of those chokes where it's not like it's tough to start with an arm triangle choke and then make it tighter as 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 you work your way into it like you it has to get on pretty tight in the initial setup phase and which means there usually has to be some kind of element of surprise and it's really or it ought to be really hard for somebody to do that to you from the bottom if you're an experienced professional fighter. You just should not get caught in that. I think that was a lot of just like fatigue and that maybe the, the, either the combination of fatigue made him tap sooner or resist less or just like hurt his ability to, to think through and see the early warning signs that something like that was there or just not take it seriously as a threat early enough. Um, because he feels like, okay, I'm on top and I'm just going to rest here. And the warning lights aren't going off in his head when they ought to be either because he thinks no way can the guy get it or because he is just so tired that he can't, his brain isn't working as well as it, as it should. And honestly, fight IQ has not been one of Jean Volante's greatest strengths for his entire time in the UFC. And so uh, I don't know. I, you, you should not get caught in that joke if you're, if you're a professional fighter in the UFC. That's what I'm saying. Wow, harsh indictment. You just uh, next question comes from Liam Brady. He writes, Maurice Green cried after his fight due to the relief of getting his win bonus and what it means to him and his family. It's easy to blame the UFC for handing out shitty contracts, but the fighters need to have better management working for better contracts. Maurice Green was on a 50 to show, 50 to win, but have a look on the prelims, and there's Felipe Linz taking home a flat 85000 for getting KO'd in the first round. Eddie Alvarez was on a flat rate contract too, so it's possible if you have the right team behind you. Discuss. Uh, man, I think it's pretty hard. That you know, you see some of these people with these with with what appear to be more advantageous contracts to others. In a, in a lot of instances, they are established veterans, guys that have had success in the in the in the past and guys that have already proved some manner of worth in the sport like Eddie Alvarez. The thing that I think a lot of people don't understand about negotiations in this sport and like how you go about getting that contract. So like, let's say you are Maurice Green's manager and you roll up to a negotiation with the UFC and you say, okay, here's what we want. A hundred thousand flat rate, no win bonus. He gets that cash on the barrel head no matter what happens. And the UFC says, no. Then what do you do? <laughs> Say, please? Yeah, I'll be your if you're best Maurice Green's manager, be like, uh, okay, I guess we'll take our talents to, to Bellator. Chances are you're probably already locked in a contract to the UFC, so you literally can't do that. But like, what's Bellator going to do? You think Bellator is going to like give Maurice Green a sweetheart deal? No. Like Maurice Green doesn't necessarily have the status in the sport to do that. Like the thing about the negotiations in MMA and negotiations with the UFC is like, what's your bargaining power, man? What's, what's your, what's your ability to, to go into that negotiation and get the thing that you want from the UFC when the UFC knows damn well, you're kind of the only place 
it's kind of the only place you can work. And if it if it says it's not going to give you any of your your asks or your demands, like what can you really do? Nothing. Also, I don't think this question misstated Maurice Green's payout as 50K and 50K. Uh, I, the payout I'm looking at from the Nevada Athletic Commission says 30K and 30K. Okay. And that's his last fight, which he lost, he made a disclosed $30,000, which would suggest that he was on the same thing there, that 30 to show and 30 to win. Didn't win, so he stayed at it. Uh, and then he gets the 30K and 30K here against John Vellante, who, by the way, was making 75K and 75K. But, I mean... To be going in there in a heavyweight fight in the UFC on goddamn ESPN, and even if you win, it's just sixty grand. Like that's that's not a whole lot of money. But you're right. Like everything that the way the UFC has set up this system is, they will kind of use it. They will use the success of the system against other fighters by basically being like, "Oh, what you say, you want this kind of money, but here's what the experience you have, and here's your wins losses in the UFC." Here's what we've paid other people who are in the same situation. How can I justify paying you more? Like what is different about you uh, that is different from their situation? And you can't really point to anything except to say like, well, man, you should have been paying him more too. But you didn't like, and you got away with it because he signed with it because of this exact same forces you already described that, that get fighters there in the first place. And so then they just, it just a system that perpetuates itself over and over again. Also, I mean, Felipe Lins wasn't getting a flat fee either. I think I think he got paid a disclosed eighty grand to lose, but it, he was on an eighty and eighty just because, as we've seen, heavyweights tend to get paid more. But I mean, that, that again is a situation where a guy making eighty and eighty got absolutely sparked by a guy making twelve and twelve. You know, like there's a lot of screaming deals going on for uh, young talent in the UFC right now. Next question this week comes to us from Kip Pennington, who writes, "In cha- I'm channeling my inner Tito Ortiz to ask, was there a fix on in the Kay Hansen uh, Jin Yu Fry fight? We were oh, told boy. of a thirty, yeah, <laughs> we were told of a thirty-seven thousand dollar bet on Hansen, which on its own wouldn't warrant someone throwing a fight. But what if that was just one of many bets placed on Hansen? As last week moved on, Hansen became more and more of a favorite, meaning more and more money was being bet on her. Then there's a link here to uh, DraftKings where there's some evidence of that, the, the line moving. Anyway, something didn't feel right about the fight. Frey put up very little effort to fight the Hanson takedown, uh, put up very little resistance to the arm bar, and finally tapped after 5, 10 seemingly pain-free seconds in the position. What's really going on? Uh, so, Ben, the sport loves a conspiracy. Yeah. We're going we're gonna to find the conspiracy. This would actually be one of the more reasonable conspiracy theories Tito Ortiz had ever put forth, if this were an actual right. Tito Ortiz right. theory. Right. And look, like, I mean, the... the, the we can't whether we can't say one way or another whether a fight was was fixed or rigged in almost any instance and and like it's it feels uh it's not cool man it feels irresponsible to suggest that a fight is fixed if you don't really have any evidence of it now that is to say like could you fix a fight in the UFC for relatively cheap yes obviously you could because People in this sport just aren't making that much money. And so, you know, you could probably roll in for a very reasonable payday and, and offer somebody, uh, you know, the ability to, to either win a fight or lose a fight or whatever whatever you wanted to do. And I agree that this thing where these big bets are becoming public and usually coming out on social media before the event is kind of weird and feels like a new thing. But, you know, you just look at this fight between – Kay Hansen and, and Jin Yu Fry, and it doesn't really it, like I don't see any evidence of it being fixed. Like 
if you want to cite as your evidence of a fix, like the last 10 seconds of the fight, okay. But that was the third round of a 15-minute yeah. fight where in the first round, uh, Jin Yu Fry comes out and the very first thing she does is blast Kay Hansen in the face with a series of elbows. And then about three minutes later in that same round, kicks her right in her damn face. Head kick style. So I don't know, man. I don't I don't have any experience fixing a fight. I don't know how you would do it. I don't know how you would plan it out. But it seems pretty risky to me if you were going to fix a fight to be like, all right, I will tap to an arm bar in the third. But before that, I'm going to kick you in your face as hard as I can. Yeah. This Again, every time we end up talking about some kind of question about whether a fight was fixed, I will repeat the same mantra. If you think that's what a fixed fight looks like, that it looks that convincing, then you haven't seen an actual fixed fight because they never look that good. Like the few that we've seen where we're like, okay, we actually have very good reason to believe that they are fixed. They don't look anywhere near that convincing. And you're right. You wouldn't go through all that to have a third round arm bar. And the fact that we, it, that it's kind of normal now for us to hear about when a big bet is placed down on somebody in a surprising situation, that shows you how difficult it would be to really profit off of something like this without raising too many eyebrows. Because you'd, you'd have to make a bunch of small bets, I would think, because otherwise, how is it worth it? Like it was a $37,000 bet to win twenty grand. Like how much would you have to pay uh, the you know a losing fighter in order to throw a fight, possibly risk throwing away their whole career if they get caught, and then still have enough money left over for you that it makes sense financially. Like if a thirty-seven thousand dollar bet to make twenty grand brings that much attention, you know twenty grand profit isn't enough. Like it's it's probably not even enough to convince the fighter to throw the fight in the first place. So uh, the economics of it just wouldn't work out. And plus, I, I think you're right that you just like I understand how people could look at that finish and be like, OK, it looked a little weird because her arm was extended. She wasn't exactly fighting to defend. And the look on her face when she finally tapped was kind of like, OK, damn it. Fine. Like, I'll go ahead and tap. But I think that was mainly her thinking like, OK, I'm kind of stuck. I can't really get a defense going, but I'm not exactly sure if my arm's about to break yet. Let me see if I can hold on to the last possible moment. And maybe if I can no-sell it a little bit, she'll think she doesn't have it and try to readjust her grip, and then I'll be able to get out. And then you realize, okay, that was placing a whole lot of hope onto not a great strategy anyway, so fine, I'll go ahead and tap. I think that's all that was. I think that it's way harder to pull off throwing or you know, fixing fights and getting away with it and everybody making their money and going home happy than people think it is. Although I will say, we've talked about it before, the fact that so many people are paid so poorly in the UFC is kind of eventually inviting that sort of risk because right. the less somebody is making, the less amount of money it's going to take to convince them to, to at least consider that possibility. If, if you go to somebody, you're trying to fix the Super Bowl, imagine how much money you would have to throw around to convince a bunch of millionaires in the NFL to fix a game. In uh, fighting, it would be way, way easier. Yeah, I think we would be naive to say that that there haven't been fixed fights that we don't know about or there haven't been fixed fights that that didn't look like fixed fights. Uh but at the same time, like I just don't see any evidence of that in this instance. Like if 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 they fixed this fight somehow, they did a good job because it looked legitimate to me all the way through. If you fix the fight, fix it in a way where I don't have to fight for 12 minutes before you I finally lose. Jesus right. Christ. Do a f- first round armbar. How about yeah, that? Here we go. 
Next question this week comes to us from John Giles, who writes, so Paige Van Zandt is fighting out her contract. Good for her. I mean, if she can get paid better elsewhere, then why not? Thing is, the UFC still holds the power to fuck with her if they want. For example, if she really wants to move to Bellator to be in the same organization as her husband, the UFC have the right to match the offer preventing the move. Alternatively, they could come out early doors and announce that they won't be taking up any matching rights, allowing Bellator and Victor or even one uh, from having to dig too deep into their war chest to sign her. Do you think the risk factor or lack of self-belief present prevents more fighters from trying out the free agency? I don't understand why fighters sign up for seven fight contracts, knowing that they lose, if they lose a couple in a row, they can be cut. And if they blow the doors off, the UFC is unwilling to renegotiate with them. Well, uh, so we talked about this on Friday, Paige Van Zandt and heading into the last fight of her contract at UFC 251, she fights Amanda Rebus. Uh, in the what's scheduled to be the first fight on the actual pay-per-view card. She says that after that, she's going to test free agency and maybe correctly points out that, that, you know, she would be one of the more valuable free agents in recent memory in mixed martial arts. Yeah. And pointing out that probably does not matter if she wins or she loses. Her value is probably still relatively the same for whoever would sign her next. And I think she might actually have a point there. As for this point, like why I don't understand why fighters sign up for seven fight contracts. I think like Jorge Masvidal kind of offered us a view of how that happens, right? Where he said, hey, they came to me saying, you want this big opportunity, uh, you know, to go to this next level and have a big fight? Uh, yeah, of course you want it. So here's the deal you have to sign, and it's a long-term deal. And I think uh, Paige Van Zant was saying that she is still on that same deal that she was on um, when, when she fought uh, – uh, I'm, I'm blanking on – the, when she fought, uh, was it Rose Namajunas who she fought? And it was a honestly a, like a pretty great fight. Yeah, like it was the Rose Namajunas one, I believe, in 2015. Um, and, you know, she got beat up pretty good in that fight, but really showed her toughness, I thought, too. Like, because it was a, a fight where she definitely had a few instances where it looked like it was going to be over, and she stayed in that fight, even though she was taking a beating. And I think showed that, you know, deep maybe technically she wasn't, uh, ready for that next level, but that she had the heart that she wasn't just a pretty blonde girl in there to, and who didn't want to get punched in the face like that. She, she was a fighter somewhere deep down inside and that, but she also said she's been on the same contract since then. I mean, that was five years ago. So it's easy to, for us to look at it now and be like, well, Hey, why would you ever sign a, fight, a, a deal that long term when it only protects the UFC and does not protect you at all. They can cut you at any time if it turns out that you absolutely suck. And I think the answer is just that you didn't have any other choice. Like it was the only contract they were offering you. And uh, I, I mean, the we've seen the UFC go both ways with this strategy in, in terms of free agents. Like either say like, okay, hey, we're gonna draw this out as long as we can, make sure that you can't move on too quickly, or to announce right away, hey, we're not even in this free agency negotiation. So therefore, whoever else is going to scoop her up, go ahead and lowball her because we're not an option for her anymore. I mean, either one of those is, is possible. But I think Paige Van Zandt's point was basically, if I'm making more money off of posting on Instagram, then I don't really have to worry too much about it. Like, I, I'm going to be fine either way. The problem most fighters have, like why they're not as willing to engage in this, like fighting out the contract and go into the free agency battle and risk all that, is because most of them don't have posting on Instagram as a fallback career. She's kind of unique in that she does. 
Yeah, and we talked about this on Friday during the power hour. Like, she might be right that it doesn't matter if she wins or loses, that she's going to have the same bargaining power either way, whether it be with the UFC again or with another organization. But you just look at that the UFC knows that she's fighting out her contract. This is the last fight on her deal. And so they slot her here against Amanda Rebus, who is an enormous favorite. Like, Paige Van Zandt is a a significant underdog in this fight uh, against Amanda Rebus at, at women's flyweight. So, uh, you know, she it might not affect her bargaining power, but I think the UFC strategy is clear here. They want to send you out on a loss if they can. Yeah. Next question from the Jesse White Deer. He writes, Luis Pena doesn't strike me as a Wu-Tang Clan fan. Uh, he clearly hasn't heard how to protect his neck. Oh. Death Star, though, he's Shaolin bound. This was a pretty good fight, right? Yeah. Uh, Luis Pena and... Uh, uh, Comma Worthy. Comma worthy on the prelims of the uh, of UFC on ESPN 12. Yeah, this is the featured prelim worthy wins third round guillotine choke. But uh, everybody got to do their stuff a little bit in this one because he had worthy in the in the first round shown his striking. Luis Pena in the second round doing some good grappling, and then worthy with the uh, with the choke victory in the third. So uh, uh, a good fight all the way around here. Although a, a potentially heartbreaking loss for the violent Bob Ross fans out there. Yeah, you got to think, especially after the way that second round went, that when Luis Pena was going back to the corner, one thing he did not think was going to be a problem in the third round was getting submitted by Worthy. Right. He clearly felt like, okay, I've got the grappling edge on this guy, and that's where I need to get it. And then he gets caught in that choke. And maybe that was part of it. Maybe he felt a little too confident and didn't feel like he had to worry about anything that guy was going to throw at him submission-wise. Uh, but I think, you know, Kamworthy, uh, he's a tough fighter, man. Like, he, he is skilled, and I think that he might surprise some people. I don't know about the Death Star, though, as a nickname, Chad. I don't love it. It's weird. I don't know that I know. Do, do, can someone explain it to me? I mean, first of all, he knows they were the bad guys, right? You'd, and, you'd think. You would and think. that the Death Star, it didn't, it didn't end up that well. It didn't go great for the Death Star. Like it was like, you know, 90% or whatever, 95, 99%, whatever it was, invulnerable, which proved to be not good enough. Like we we kind of saw that uh that maybe mistakes were made when it came to the Death Star. Not sure that's the nickname I'd go with. A lot of success. He hasn't seen all the movies. Maybe, maybe he just saw part of it. He was like, okay, shit, that's cool. He just watched up – spoiler alert. They, he just watched up to when they destroy Alderaan and then he was like, okay, this I've, Death Star thing. I've seen all I need to see. Yeah. <laughs> uh, next question we comes to us from uh, Irish broadcaster Eamon Dunphy. Nice. He, he writes, is Michael Bisping the new Mike Goldberg? He has a broadcast-related question here of from course, Eamon Dunphy. Naturally. Is Michael Bisping the new Mike Goldberg? The UFC could start selling a Bisping doll where you pull the string and hear his commentary. Whoa, look at this. This might be it. He seems to work better with DC, but pairing him with Dominic Cruz is a mistake. Poor Dominic was giving out great, uh, was giving great detail break, great in detail breakdown of the action, and then Bisping comes crashing through uh, like the Kool Aid guy with nothing of benefit to the analysis. Uh, he's definitely not my cup of tea. Is he well received uh, by audiences in the U.S.? So I don't know. I think at times Bisping is fun. I think yeah. he can be a fun, a fun broadcaster. I think he brings that that energy to the table, uh, and so I don't necessarily hate what he's doing there. And I think on paper, it seems like a, the right move to put Bisping out there with somebody like Dominic Cruz, who can maybe do a little bit more technical analysis, or whose thing is a little bit more technical analysis, because clearly Bisping uh, is technically skilled himself. But like, 
Uh, I agree that maybe it doesn't work out as well in practice as it does to pair Bisping with a guy like DC where they can just kind of bounce off each other. Yeah, I mean, Dominic Cruz and Bisping offer different things on a broadcast. And so I can kind of see what they might be thinking there. Uh, it's true that Dominic Cruz is more the like detailed technical analysis and breakdown guy. Bisping brings more energy and humor frankly, into the room and less like um, Dominic Cruz sometimes comes off as like a little bit of a jerk. Like he can't believe he has to suffer all these fools around him. And Bisping does Bisping is a little more fun. I mean, I think he is well-received and I think it's like, I don't know when I hear that Bisping is on the call, I'm not expecting a super detailed technical breakdown. I mean, I think he's, Definitely, it's not like Bisping got where he did in his career based on just sheer overwhelming athletic ability. Like, he definitely had to understand the game and had to be like a, a technician in a lot of ways. But I don't know. I, I think it's unfair to Bisping to just act like all he is is this guy who's just shouting the same stuff over and over again. I think that he, he brings a lot of like personality and fun to the broadcast. I, I like having him there. I also like having the uh, where you can hear fighters reacting in the empty arena, like where. Dan Hooker kicks Dustin Poirier low a couple times right off the bat in the first round and Bisping being like, okay, come on, knock it off. Like get the kicks up. And you hear Poirier say, listen to Bisping. Like those are fun moments. Yeah. Yeah. Here's what I want to know. Do you think that it's awkward to have Dominic Cruz and Keith Peterson together in the empty (laughs) arena, the apex, like small intimate room. It's not like you can really avoid each other. I wonder if they've spoken or are they just kind of avoiding each other? Because otherwise it would be uh, kind of awkward just to be there in the silent, empty arena with the guy that you accused of smelling like booze and dirty strippers or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if I'm Keith Peterson and I see Dominic Cruz around after that, I might feel like, you know, you don't want to roll up on him and be like, what's up, Dominic Cruz? Talk that shit now. Now, you know, but you do want to be like, hey, man, come on. What the hell was that about? Agreed. Uh, I wouldn't let that shit slide entirely, even even if we are talking to Dominic Cruz. All right. Next question here from Marcus McGahey, who writes, do you suspect that John Jones's recent holdout is motivated in whole or in part by a fear of imminent defeat? When Jones last returned to the UFC, he promised to devote himself to being an active champion. Now he would seemingly rather sit out in pursuit of one big payday than attempt to accumulate what is likely more money by taking on all comers. Don't get me wrong. Fighters absolutely should be paid more money, and I would love to see fighters uh, pay approach if not exceeded the 50% mark. At the same time, I have a hard time believing that Jones is looking out for the UFC roster at large. On a related note, it seems that many fans have adopted the view that Jones's recent performances – and perhaps his current holdout are USADA related. Many members of the MMA media have instead attempted to explain away Jones's recent mediocre performances, i.e. versus Smith, Santos, Reyes, and even OSP, by, by positing a lack of motivation and or natural decline. The USADA and motivation hypothesis would seem to enjoy near evidential parity. Uh, so why do we see this preference? Uh, I don't... There's a lot there. Yeah, there's a lot happening here. But I would be really, really surprised to learn that if I gave John Jones truth serum and put him in a room and asked him what was up with his holdout, I would be very, very surprised if fear of imminent defeat was was motivating him. Yeah. I would be surprised if it were anywhere in the top five motivations. Similarly, though, 
If I had him in that room, under the influence of that truth serum, I would also be surprised to hear him say that he genuinely believes he is going to help out the entire roster and the lower paid fighters way down there on the food chain. Yeah. I don't think that, I think that that is a somewhat savvy framing that he has put on this as it has stretched out. Because as we said on the power on Friday, uh, I think he realizes that it is less sympathetic if you are one of the higher paid guys in the organization and you're one of the biggest stars and you are in a fight, you're in a holdout over money when there's other guys making 12 and 12. I think that he realizes it plays better to say like, I'm doing this for all of us. And this is a a fight of fighters versus management. Um, But I don't believe that that's the big main motivating factor either. I think true serum John Jones would tell us he just wants that money and he feels that he is worth it. He feels he deserves it. He feels that he's been underpaid and he's angry about it. And I, I think that that's, it's as simple as that. Yeah, I think it's way more in keeping with what we know about John Jones for him to start out the year by saying that he wants wanted to be a fighting champion and he wanted to take on all comers and he you know he wanted to get back to business and all this stuff than only to kind of get mad over an unforeseen disagreement with the UFC over his pay when he started talking about this uh Francis Ngannou fight like probably got excited about it and the UFC kind of came through and crushed his dreams by saying no we're not going to renegotiate with you. We're not going to give you any more money at all. And then he gets kind of mad and now is suddenly saying he's going to sit out for, for two years. It's more, it's more believable to me that Jones would get in that involved in that kind of type of situation that, that Jones would suddenly get worried that he was somehow going to lose it all. If he lost his lightweight light heavyweight championship or something like that, uh, just because it seems more in keeping with how Jones operates sort of, yeah. uh, than it, than it would the other way. And like, I mean, I don't. I don't think John Jones is afraid to lose. Like, even even if he did lose, I don't think that he would be crushed by it. I think he would. You know, I think he's probably confronted the idea in his mind a million times, uh, regardless of whether or not he would ever tell us that. I think that he's probably. Uh, I think he's probably mostly given it to us on the level in terms of what's going on with his UFC dispute and why he wants to sit out. I would just agree with with you, Ben, that uh, I think he's clearly mostly re- motivated around self interest. And that like, you know, if other people can get paid more by John Jones leading by example, that's probably fine with him. But it also doesn't seem like he's uh, he's going about it in a way that would really let him act as the tide that raises all boats. I think he's he's more uh, keenly interested in getting paid more himself. Yeah. And as far as this USADA stuff, man, I don't know. Like this is a this is an explanation that fans seem to love, like not just about Jones, but about lots of different fighters who who eventually experience some manner of career slide. Uh, and not that we can even say that Jones's career slide has been all of that all that noticeable because he did win those fights after all. Uh, but like I don't know, it just seems it seems like an easy answer for fans to constantly say, oh, this person was never the same after USADA. That person was never the same after USADA. When it's like, I don't know that we really have much evidence to make that case. Yeah. Yeah. But and yet I also don't know if we're ever going to stop doing that. Next question this week comes to us from Eric Sandine. We're up over an hour here, so we'll like we got a couple more, and then we'll probably wrap it up. Uh, with the old Rona ramping back up with a vengeance in Dana White slash Donald Trump country, do you think flying a bunch of Americans to the UAE in two weeks for UFC 251 is going to be a sure thing, or will the UFC need to call an audible back to Vegas for a splintered card? I am already reading that Europe is talking about banning American travelers 
uh, when their borders open. Do you think the UFC has dropped off enough envelopes full of illegal campaign contributions in D.C. and the UAE uh, to make it happen no matter what? Well, I mean, it's not like you're trying to fly off to Paris to have your fight card. You know, flying over to your friends in Abu Dhabi, I think, is still one of the the safer plays for the UFC in terms of keeping it all together, even if the situation at large in America deteriorates with the coronavirus. Because, I mean, I do agree that it is something when you see a bunch of other countries being like, well, one place we don't want people coming in from right route right now is the United States of America, because they are not handling this shit well. And that stings a little bit as an American, but you also got to look at it and be like, shit, you're right. Like, I can't say you're wrong about that. Like, we would definitely do the same to you if the situation were reversed. Like, if it were something where, you know, England was just super fucking this up. Germany just, they're, they never, ever flattened the curve. And their cases just kept surging and surging. And we had taken care of it would be like, well, shit, no, Germans, you can't come over here. I don't care why you think you need to come over. It's not going to happen. So, like, I can absolutely understand when those countries do it. But I also think that, you know, the UFC and uh, the ownership there have a pretty cozy relationship uh, with everybody in Abu Dhabi. I don't think that there's going to be too many situations that's going to make them be like, you know what? We feel the health risk to our citizens of having you guys come over here to Yaz Island is just unacceptable. and We can't do it. I mean, I think that they they feel like, you know, this one, one of the nice things about having – Yaz Island, be Fight Island, is that uh, you have some people who are just pretty much in charge over there who are also uh, pretty buddy-buddy with you, and everything's going to be fine. Yeah, they have a stake, right? Don't they still have a financial stake in the uh, UFC? I think that they got that, uh, I think they Or did that, was that, that back. they got paid off when WMEIMG came in? I believe that they had already sold that back, yeah. Okay. Yeah, but they the they are also like you look at the the advertisements for this UFC Fight Island thing and the Abu Dhabi Board of Tourism has their logo on it. So like they are in some ways partners on this event to move Fight Island to to Abu Dhabi. So I think I don't know necessarily know that we would be this far down the path 2 weeks out from UFC 251 without you know, if I think if there was a, even though it's hard to predict how things are going to happen in the pandemic, I think if there was any sense that this thing might not get pulled off as scheduled, though I don't know that we would have got this far down the path. It seems like the UFC probably would have pulled back, but um, at this point, I would expect it to go off as scheduled for better or for worse. Yeah. All right, let's do one more here from Roy or- Orland. And then we'll wrap up for this week. He writes, I have an observation about Americans and masks, which might shed some light on the problems of forming a union. It seems that big talk aside, Americans have very little sense of responsibility to your community. When the simple act of wearing a mask to protect the weaker among you is deemed an attack on personal freedom, is it really that surprising that fighters, every one of them, uh, or every one of whom is sure is the next is sure they are the next big thing, won't commit to something that might help others more than themselves? Hmm. Okay. It's a, I don't, feels like a bit of a stretch to me. I mean, I think that there's two different harmful mentalities at work there. Like, I, I can understand like how, how you might see them and think that they're the same thing. Like the mask thing, I saw somebody pointing out recently uh, on Twitter, I believe it was, that basically America has learned that it was uniquely uh, unprepared for a situation where the thing we needed to do for survival was to just show some very meager level of concern for others. But that also, like, we have developed this culture where we think being asked to take 
any precautions or, or to change your lifestyle, to be inconvenienced even a little bit for the sake of others, if it wasn't your idea, and like if people can make you do that, if people can make you be inconvenienced, that we take it out as a sign of weakness, that the, the strong are never allow themselves to be inconvenienced just for the sake of others. And that I, I think that that is a, a true and a damning assessment of some aspects of American culture. And it goes way beyond just the coronavirus stuff. Like you look at our inability to even think about doing something about climate change. And it's a very similar thing. Like, oh, no, how, how dare you think that I should be inconvenienced or that I should change my lifestyle even a little bit to ensure the survival of the human race on the planet? No, like the strong do not allow themselves to be manipulated that way. And I, I think that that is a pervasive thought in our society. But as for as far as fighters, I think a lot of it is just sheer like utilitarianism, like them kind of thinking about like, look, what are the chances that if I throw my weight behind this thing, it actually gets done? And then also, what are the chances that it gets done in time to help me? Because I got a limited window of opportunity here to make my money in this career. And I, if I waste a bunch of it in this fight with management, and it doesn't pan out. The next thing I know, you know, I'm done, and maybe maybe we win the fight ultimately. But what good will it do me by then? And that's honestly not a, an irrational fear when you look at how this similar situation has played out in other sports. That these fights in other sports to to get some kind of like to, to get better rights for the fighters and better negotiating uh, situations for athletes in other sports, like in the NFL and in Major League Baseball, they often don't end up benefiting the people who initially started them and made the most sacrifices for them. They benefit everybody else who comes later. And so I can understand why fighters look at it and be like, I don't know if I want to be the one to put myself on the chopping block for that. I feel like I got to make the money while I can and, and take care of my family. Yeah, I, I think like politically, I think I agree with you that in America, we seem to have developed a very strange conceptualization of what freedom is. Like we tend to put a very lot, a lot of uh, emphasis on personal freedom and almost no emphasis on like community freedom or the good of the whole. You see it all the time with uh, like the Second Amendment and open carry issues, which which we see a lot here in Montana. Like uh, we will, a person will always take advantage of their personal freedom to bring a gun to the farmer's market <laughs> without ever stopping Especially to think Montana. that like maybe by doing so I am. Uh, infringing on the f like the freedom of the group that like by bringing my gun to the farmer's market, I make everyone there feel less safe and more nervous and less free. But the only thing that concerns me is that I personally have my gun with me and that for whatever reason is my right. So it's, it's a weird kind of uh, way we've evolved into thinking about freedom in this country. Uh, but I also don't necessarily know if it affects fighter unionization in a huge way. I think that there are some people, I mean, in some ways, I, I think that that it's it's accurate to say that fighters are out for themselves and that they don't want to risk their own marketing time or their own ability to earn wages from this sport to try to do something that's good for the whole. Uh, but I think that the real reason is just that there's so many damn obstacles. Like it's like there were so many things that would have to happen in order to form a working fighters union or association. I think a lot of fighters look at it and think it's just like a pie in the sky idea that it would never be a thing that actually happened. And like you said, wouldn't happen quickly enough to, to help them out. And so I think the entire package makes them look at it and kind of be like, uh, despite the fact that I feel somewhat powerless, despite the fact that I know 
we could all be making more money if we went down this road. I just don't think it would ever happen. Like I think there are there are some people who look at it and think like, okay, I might make more money or I might make less money if we had a, a union, so I'm not interested. Uh, but those people are kind of few and far between. And I also think that they're wrong. I think they would all probably end up making more money if they were able to get a, a, a more advantageous split in revenue. But I think that the the predominant view is that it just seems like a like a wish or a pie in the sky idea that would never really happen. And so a lot of people are both uh, hesitant and frankly scared to like try to take it, take it on as their, as their pet issue. Yeah. All right. That is going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. If you have a question, a comment or concern that you would, would like to air to the podcast for next week's show or in future weeks, you know how to do it. Just go to the website, comainevent.com and click the link in the top right hand corner that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. We will be back on Wednesday for the live chat and we will also record the episode, a movie club episode about the great white hype for people over on the Patreon. And then we will be back again on Friday for the Patreon Power Hour leading up to uh, 4th of July weekend. So we hope everybody has fun and, and uh, you know, join us back here either later in the week for our Patreon stuff or one week from today for the proper. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. I tell you, though, when you roll up into that farmer's market with your gun on you, Wish a motherfucker would cut in front of me in line for the balloon animals. You know what I'm saying? I think I've said this before on the show, but like, it's never the guy you want to have the, the gun on him at the farmer's market. It's like when you conceptualize it in your mind, it's never a guy who looks like, oh, this guy's definitely taken a lot of tactical shooting classes. Like, he looks like a Navy SEAL or something. He probably knows what he's doing with the, with the sidearm. It's always a guy, you know, a little bit dumpy wearing a american flag t-shirt or a wolf howling at the moon on his t-shirt and like you know black black cargo pants or something it's never the guy that you conceptualize like oh here comes the good guy with his gun it's always a guy who you just feel nervous about those colors don't run chad he's gonna let oh, you I know. know i know he's gonna let everybody know <laughs> <laughs>